Welcome to In Search of Wisdom, a podcast by the Perennial Leader Project. In this episode, my guest is Professor Krista Tolmason, the author of the new book, Dancing with the Devil, Why Bad Feelings Make Life Good. Krista is an associate professor of philosophy. Her writings focus on the philosophy of emotion, moral philosophy, and the history of philosophy. In the conversation, Krista and I discuss discerning our way in life, various approaches to emotions across wisdom traditions, why Montaigne is an influential figure in the book, common obstacles to feeling our emotions, why bad feelings make life good, and so much more. I really enjoyed this one and hope you do as well. Without any further delay, Please welcome the wise and gracious Krista Thomason. All right. Well, Krista, welcome to In Search of Wisdom. All right. Thanks so much for having me. It is an absolute pleasure. I have really enjoyed going through your book, which is going to be the topic of our chat today, Dancing with the Devil, Why Bad Feelings Make Life Good. Uh, but before we get into the book, we generally spend a little bit of time and talk about how your particular path, interest, you know, fill in the blank. I, I tend to ask you, uh, philosophers that come on the show, <laughs> how did you make your way into a career in philosophy? Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. So, uh, yeah, I did not, when I went to college, I did not think that I was going to be a philosophy major. I actually intended to be a theater major. That's what I had done all through high school. And uh, I got to uh, got to college and I took my theater classes that I was going to take and I realized, oh, wow, I'm miserable <laughs> and I hate this <laughs> uh, and I don't want to do this anymore. And I had taken a philosophy class completely on a whim because I didn't know what philosophy was and I'd never heard of it. Uh, and I just fell kind of head over heels in love with it. It was uh, a, a space where I felt like all of these people had been asking all of these kind of big questions about life that I had always asked myself. And I thought, oh, my gosh, this is, you know, this is my home. Uh, and so when it came time to do something else other than theater, when I decided I was actually going to quit, I, I was like, well, what's the only thing that I've really been interested in in the same way I was interested in theater? And it was philosophy. So I, I declared my major and kind of never looked back. Uh, I didn't think I was going to necessarily do a PhD, but then I had some really wonderful mentors in undergraduate, and they encouraged me to think about it. And I, I worked for a couple of years before I we went to graduate school, and I thought, no, you know what? I really miss philosophy, and, and that's the thing that I, that I really love. And so I, I went to grad school, and, and the rest is history. Well, beautiful. I'm glad that you did. Um, if there's any listeners out there that are you know, discerning a particular fork in the road, do this or that, um, you know, what con- comes to mind around advice in those types of situations? Yeah, it's really hard to say. Um, I think we are, I think we're sometimes not great at listening to ourselves. Uh, I think we oftentimes get really hung up in a vision of life that we think we're supposed to have. And it's very hard for us to to kind of device, divest ourselves from those images and those expectations. Um, and, and I think learning how to listen to yourself and learning how to 
really think about what you value and what really matters to you is a lot harder than it sounds um, because I think we're so used to having that other kind of voice in our head about what we think our lives are supposed to look like and what we're supposed to do. So uh, the advice I would have is to just to try really hard to to kind of listen to yourself um, and think about what really does matter to you, even if there's some voice in your head that, th- that says, oh, I don't know, maybe you should do this other thing. Maybe it's smarter to do this other thing. I think it's, <laughs> it's, it's good to sort of think like, I don't know, but, but you know, what is my, what's my gut really telling me? Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, lovely. Uh, we generally start off as a transition into the book, maybe, defining terms and things like that to the to the best of our ability so i i wrote a quick um note of something you write in the introduction you say the best garden is one with no weeds and the best life is one with no bad feelings we need to change this way of thinking bad feelings are the worms not the weeds Mm -hmm. could you say more about this idea of um Worms instead of weeds. Yeah, yeah. I think this is a really common metaphor that people use when they're thinking about their negative emotions, right? It's like, these are the things that are going to prevent me from living the life I want to live. And if I don't get rid of them, they're going to take over. They're going to turn me into a person I don't want to be. They're going to prevent me from being happy. Um, they're going to keep me from living the life that I want to have. And so they, we treat them like they're weeds in the garden, right? They're the things that are going to spoil it if we don't get, get rid of them. Um, I think we need to rethink how we think about our emotional life and uh, what kinds of emotions are, are good to have and what kinds are not good to have. And so I think changing the sort of garden metaphor and thinking maybe these negative emotions, even though they're a little bit like worms in the sense that they're a little bit gross maybe, and maybe (laughs) people don't want to look at them and they make people a little bit squeamish and you'd sort of rather just look at the flowers and kind of pretend like the worms aren't there. Um, But just like the garden, the, the worms are there to make sure that the soil that the flowers grow in is rich enough for them. And if it weren't for the worms, the soil would be too depleted and there wouldn't be anything to grow. So what if we, instead of thinking about our bad feelings as the weeds, what if we thought about them like the worms? They're the thing that's actually making sure, like they're, they're the sign that the soil is rich enough for stuff to grow in. And so in that sense, they're not obstacles to a good life, but actually they're part of what it means to live a good life. So fascinating. Uh, I appreciate that. And uh, yeah, I'm just really grateful to be able to chat chat about it with you today. Um, another thing that I'd love for you to talk about is um, maybe two terms or maybe two different categories in the way of um, controlled emotional saints and cultivated emotional saints. Mm-hmm. And then just something for the listeners, because we cover a lot of different wisdom traditions here. Your book covers many, many different philosophers and wisdom traditions. So I think many of the listeners are going to gonna love that about the book for sure. Mm-hmm. But yeah, could you say more about those two terms? Yeah, absolutely. So, so I think there's this really powerful ideal that's out there in the world. And this ideal basically is, here's like the basic thought. The basic thought is uh, we, life would be better if we had fewer negative emotions or maybe no negative emotions. And there's different ways you might think about that. 
And in the history of philosophy, I think there's basically two kinds of traditions you can identify that both accept this idea, but kind of in different ways. And so the controlled emotion saints are the folks who think, uh, look, our life would be much better off if we didn't have any of these negative emotions. We should get over them as best we can, get them out of our lives as much as we can. There's a lot of different philosophers that fall into that category. I, of course, would argue that like the Stoics are in this category and also in the Indic tradition, like Gandhi's in this category. There's other folks too. Um, but they And they recognize this is hard, right? They would recognize that this is really difficult to do, but it's worth it because the negative emotions are kind of nothing but trouble. And so we would just be much better off if we got over them. Um, that's a kind of radical position. Maybe people are not, I, I think some people are really attracted to it, but I don't know that, that everybody is. And so if you're, if that feels like a little too radical, the idea that we really should just get rid of them totally, you might be tempted to be this other kind of emotional saint, this cultivated emotion saint. And so this is the tradition that I identify in like Aristotle, I think is in this category. I think Confucius is partially in this category too. Um, they're the ones who are going to say, no, 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 it's, we don't have to get rid of our negative emotions totally. We just have to manage them the right way, or we have to channel them into something productive, or we have to train ourselves to feel them the right kind of way. Um, both of these groups, I think, in they although they think of themselves as different, I think they sort of accept this basic idea that negative emotions are are a problem. They're just a problem in different ways, and so and we address that problem in two different ways. But fundamentally, they're still both, I think, of the view that there's something wrong with negative emotions, or that they've got to be addressed somehow in order for us to live a good life. Hmm. And. Just in the way of like this term, negative emotions, positive emotions. So maybe everybody's on the same page. Stereotypically, you know, what would be some examples of emotions in those categories? Yeah, that's actually a really great question. Like, what is it that makes an emotion negative? Is kind of a that's kind of a tricky question. So what I do in the book is I as I pick the ones that I think we're usually the most critical of when we feel them and when other people feel them. So uh, that's going to be emotions like envy or jealousy, um, contempt might be in that category. Maybe spites in that category. Maybe Schadenfreude is in that category. Maybe even anger is in that category, depending on who you ask. So I try to pick the ones that I think these are the ones that I feel like we have the most trouble with in the sense that we really judge ourselves when we feel them. And we also think they're really dangerous, maybe when other people feel them. Hmm. And I made a note of, of just a, a very short sentence you write in the book. Um, when bad feelings happen, just feel them. Seems, uh, you know, obviously very straightforward. <laughs> like, why would we do yeah. anything otherwise? Mm -hmm. uh, could you could you say a bit about that? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I. So it's like that sounds super easy, right? It sounds yeah. like really straightforward <laughs> to just feel them. Um, but we we don't do that actually as much as you think. So. A lot of times we, we have a million different kinds of reactions to our negative emotions. So one of them is, oh, you know, I start feeling, I recognize I'm start, feel, start feeling envious and I go, oh gosh, I really shouldn't do that. And I try to talk myself out of it really quick. And I, and I say, oh, you know, that's not, that's not the right way to feel. I shouldn't feel that way. And so I kind of like judge myself and chastise myself and I just try to like get, it, get rid of it all of a sudden. Um, sometimes we do things with our negative emotions like, 
we want to we want to turn them into something else. So we'll we'll try to I'll start feeling envy and I'll go, okay, no, I'm not supposed to feel that. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to channel this into a positive energy. I'm going to I'm going to, you know, if if I'm envious cuz my neighbor got a new car and I'm and I'm like, "Oh, I'm so jealous of the new car." I will turn my envy into fuel so that I can, you know, save more money or something like that. And I'm going to I'm going to work harder and that's going to get me that brand new car, right? I'm so I'm going to channel it. Or uh, I start thinking, oh, no, I should really change how I'm thinking about this. I should say, oh, no, um, you know, cars aren't really important in the end of, at the end of the day. That's just that's materialism. And I really shouldn't care that much about that. And so rather than just kind of sit with my envy, I'm going to start trying to change my mindset so that I no longer feel it. Um, we do all kinds of things with our negative emotions, I think, because we are really unable to sit with the discomfort that they bring. So we would, it makes us squirm a little bit, I think, to even admit that we feel them. I think envy is like definitely in that category. And we're so quick to just try to either get rid of them, talk ourselves out of them, turn them into something else. We have this real temptation to kind of do things with them rather than just kind of like letting ourselves feel them. I think because we're very afraid that um, you, you hear this phrase a lot with negative emotions. Oh, you don't want to feed it. So if you feel it, I think people say, oh, if I, if I let myself feel it, though, I'm going to feed the emotion. It's going to get stronger and bigger. It's going to last longer. And then it's going to take over, right? We have this vision of negative emotions as kind of like monsters or cancers. Like they're things that eat you. Um, they're <laughs> things that sort of like turn you in, they possess you. We talk about them like kind of turning you into something else. Um, but a lot of that is, I think, this kind of essentially it's a, it's a prejudice against negative emotions that they have all of these um, scary mystical powers that positive emotions don't have. And so we can't just let ourselves feel them because they're going to do all this scary mystical stuff. And maybe this is a challenging question or, or not the greatest question, but like, where does that come from? Is that cultural thing? Is that in the way of just language themselves of we we put negative in front of emotions and then we you know create this category where does it come from that's a really great question i think there's probably a lot of different sources i think in the u.s in particular there's been this really long tradition of um, influence from things like the power of positive thinking right from like norman vincent peale and that sort of stuff and there is a real barbara ironreich has this great um, book that came out, I think it's like 2005 called Bright Sided. And it mm. is, it's about this. It's about the sort of like long history of positivity in the US um, and how powerful and influential it's been in a whole bunch of different sectors. So I think there's this kind of like pro positivity bias, you might think, particularly in the US, maybe it's other places, but for sure here. Um, people have this sort of view that that if you are you know, if anything bad happens, if there's any stress, sadness, anxiety in your life, then you failed somehow or something's gone wrong. And that there's this kind of like constant pressure from society to kind of like always look on the bright side, to always try to make sure you're feeling the right kinds of ways to never get down about stuff. Um, or if you are not to not to stay there, not to do it too long, not to feel it too long. So there's some of it's that. Um, I think some of it, too, is just uh, we are not great at um, thinking that maybe there's 
parts of ourselves that we don't perfectly control. And our emotional life is always presented a little bit of a challenge, I think, to us psychologically um, because it is a little bit independent. So we have lots of examples of people who try really hard to stop themselves from feeling something and they can't or try really hard to make themselves feel something and they don't or their feelings surprise them or shock them or you expect to feel one way and you don't feel that way and you don't know what to do about it. Um, we're not, I don't think we're very good at sort of accepting that we may not be totally in control of our emotional lives. And so how do we live with a part of ourselves that we don't fully control? I think that's part of what leads us to, um, kind of having these views about these negative emotions as though they're going to take over because they, we have this like sort of scary reaction to them because they, because they don't always obey when we want them to and i think we don't because they don't always obey we sort of go like oh that means they're trouble and so we've got to do something to kind of control them rather than just thinking okay maybe part of what it means to be a human being is to live with something inside of me that i actually don't control hmm. yeah it's so fascinating and some of these um conversations on on emotions which we we've done a a number of them here on on the podcast podcast can be um challenging i can kind of understand many different sides of the things i i'm i'm a fan of um of the stoics for one and and seneca i can kind of understand this side then i can understand the other side and a, a figure I love that shows up um, many times throughout the book who maybe is okay in this complexity is uh, Montaigne. Yeah. So could you talk a little bit about, you know, Montaigne and, yeah. and why he shows up so much throughout the book? Yeah, he's great. So I, one of the things that I love about him is that he kind of takes on this tradition and philosophy of thinking um, that philosophy's job, like when it's doing what it's supposed to be doing, it's supposed to be helping us live well. And and he he has a complex view about what that means. So, you know, part of what it means is to get some clarity about yourself, right? And to sort of like reflect and introspect and think about you and, and think about what your commitments are. And philosophy is a, a way of, of doing that. And he loves all of the ancient philosophers, right? So like he loves the Stoics and he loves a bunch of those folks. Um, and he uses them as kind of guides for himself when he's trying to understand himself and he's trying to understand his life. And, and think about the challenges that he faces, he turns to them as, as resources and he uses them as a bunch of different voices in the conversation about, I'm trying to kind of figure this out. And so I love, I love that about him and I love his, uh, he has this way of being really honest about himself while at the same time not thinking, oh, I'm worthless and terrible. So he doesn't, he doesn't like pump himself up, but he also doesn't um, rat himself down. And I think, and I think that's a great attitude to have when you're trying to kind of understand yourself and you're trying to understand your emotional life. You know, don't tr sort of like try to convince yourself you're great, but also don't try to convince yourself you're terrible <laughs> either. <laughs> Just kind of like be honest about what's going on inside there. Uh, and I think that's a great attitude to have toward our emotions. Um, but yeah, Montaigne is is he's got this. Um, he has this fascinating sort of way of, of kind of like fully exploring, I think, his inner mental life and really trying not to 
um, turn it into something that it isn't and to like lay it all out for you. And the essays very much reads as this kind of like confessional sort of mode, but not in a way that, you know, not in a way that like you read Augustine's confessions and you're like, Ooh, this guy is like having some dark psychological moments. Montaigne has like some dark psychological moments, but a lot of it is just like, Oh, humans are weird. Aren't they? <laughs> um, and I love that about him. Right. I love his sort of like humans are weird attitude. Um, so yeah, he shows up a lot in the book because I think he does a great job of, of, He's got this great kind of like gentle honesty is what I like to call it. I love his attitude toward himself and toward human beings in general is this kind of like gentle honesty. <laughs> How do we make sense of um, like this idea of uh, like, how do I say it? Like in the way of complexity of emotions, like take any of, of the ones that you listed in um, around negative emotions like anger. Like in my experience, it's just often sometimes not that simple in the way of, um, is it just anger? Maybe it's like anger and sadness. And it's like, can I also be, uh, a bit of like Montaigne's cheerfulness, <laughs> like as well at this, mm-hmm. at the same time, like I am this mix of all sorts of stuff. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. It's, uh, I, but I, I found myself thinking that going through some of these chapters of, you know, and I mean, you have to use words, examples and things like that, but just the, uh, it's so much more complex than it seems we even understand sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And our emotional life is a complex place. It's, I like to think of it sometimes like I think of the, um, you know how you go into Home Depot and there's all those paint chips, right? When you're looking at the <laughs> yeah. different colors to paint your yeah. house and you, and you're like, oh my God, there's 50 different kinds of blue. And you're like, I didn't realize there was this many kinds of blue. In a way, your emotional life is kind of like that. There is, you know, there's anger, but sometimes anger doesn't even even and 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 that's true like in our own experience right like there are times where i'm not even really sure what i'm feeling enough to be able to even put words on it and sometimes my emotions feel super complicated and it's like well i'm i feel like maybe this is anger or i might have thought i was feeling one thing and then as i think about it some more i'm like actually i don't know like maybe i'm actually mad about this in a way i didn't realize um and so a, a lot of i think what we what's like what a good a good thought about this is to is to think about your emotional life in the same way you might learn how to identify the 50 different kinds of blue, right? So like <laughs> part of what you've got to do is look at all of them and compare them all together and sort of go, oh, okay, well, this one's really bright and this one's really pale and this one kind of like leans a little bit toward purple and this one like leans a little bit toward red. And so like having a kind of familiarity with them requires this attitude of kind of exploration and letting yourself really think you know, I'm, I guess I'm feeling this way, but it might be, uh, maybe I'm feeling this other way or what's going on here. A lot of that has to, you got to do a lot of exploring of your emotional life. And that is also something I think we don't love doing. I think we are, we're actually not great at, at naming our emotions. We're not great at talking about them in part because we don't have a, a really rich emotional vocabulary. 
um we have a kind of like a pretty like our color wheel is like not very <laughs> doesn't have a lot of <laughs> variation in it when we talk about our emotions and so um part of that is kind of like getting over that that um overly simplistic sort of views about our emotions but but that requires a kind of willingness to sort of like sit with them and explore them in depth and not try to chase them away immediately but rather asking yourself you know what's going on here what am i feeling why am i feeling like this rather than just trying to like immediately move on yeah what a difficult thing as you're as you're describing that i'm thinking of some of the obstacles that come up in my my own experience is like well, what is the right color blue? There must be, you know, some <laughs> sort of thing or like another one. And I made a note. You talk a little bit about blame of like, who's to blame here? You know, it's like we're like these wisdom traditions mm -hmm. often kind of universally talk. It's like, well, it's kind of complex. Like, you know, Montaigne might not talk in the way of, uh, you know, who's who's to blame. It just mm -hmm. is. Mm -hmm. And how can we? like sit with it, live the particular question, which could be quite a bit of time. Like, how do you think about that in the way of, you know, living with a particular experience, emotion that mm -hmm. maybe brings about anger and maybe three weeks later, it's, you know, it's still there, but it's something different. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think with anger in particular, we're really resistant to um, what I sometimes call long-term anger. So we we get worried, I think, that if you have anger for too long, again, that, like here comes those metaphors again of it's going to eat you up from the inside, it's like a toxin, it's going to poison you, you know, that sort of stuff. Um, but I actually think, I think our long-term anger is probably a little bit more familiar than we might realize. And like nothing brings this up better for people than like family conflicts, right? <laughs> like the, there are, I'm betting for most people out there, they have some challenging family relations, you know, and to varying degrees. Um, and I think a lot of people, and this is not, you know, it's not true all the time, but I think a lot of people actually navigate this pretty well like more than they realize um you know there are long-standing family conflicts and sometimes it's just personality stuff and there's not a real solution to it but it doesn't require actually that you stop being angry it might require you to like shut your mouth <laughs> in certain <laughs> cases. So there's, you know, I, I, people I think are oftentimes really nervous about how we express our emotions, understandably so. Um, but in, but in the book, I, I sort of make this analogy. Um, you have good reasons not to speak every thought you have out loud, right? There's plenty of thoughts you have that you don't necessarily say or express. Um, but usually people th then don't say, well, you better quit having those thoughts then. Usually <laughs> they say, no, it's okay for you to have the thoughts. It's just don't say them out loud. Well, do the same thing with your feelings, right? It's fine for you to have the feelings, even if there might be times where it's not quite okay for you to express them, especially maybe not expressing them in the way that you want to express them. But it doesn't necessarily mean there's anything wrong with having the feelings. So I think probably with things like long-term anger, that's usually what happens. We have a kind of like long-standing irritation or long-standing conflict with someone in our families. And, you know, we also get around the table at Thanksgiving and we talk to each other and we're civil. And sometimes I go into the kitchen and I roll my eyes or something like that, you know, when I'm by myself. 
the long-term anger doesn't have to be something that's kind of constantly festering inside my soul and kind of preventing me from even loving the people who I'm angry with, you know, that plenty of people, in fact, most of the time, I think the people oftentimes that we've been the most angry with in our lives are actually the people we love the most because Mm -hmm. they're so, there's so much a part, you know, our relationships are so important. And when relationships are important, when things matter to you, you feel a lot about those things, right? That's part of what it means to care about something. So caring about people means feeling a lot about them. Um, so I, I think we are, I think we, we sometimes exaggerate the danger of these kinds of like long-term sitting with these emotions, these negative emotions for a long time. I think it's more familiar to us than we realize, you know, you don't, you're not burning with anger constantly, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's gone anywhere, especially in these kind of like longer term conflicts. Yeah. It's pretty fascinating. And, and something you talk about in the book of you know, the emotion it being a sign or a message that this is something that you do care about. You think about as like a loved one saying something to you compared to a stranger that you, you know, know nothing about. Obviously, that that person that you know, a friend or family member, brings about an emotion in a different way. Um, a few weeks ago, the listeners will probably be familiar with a, a conversation we had on, on sadness, the author of um, How to Be Sad, Helen Russell, talks about this uh, a similar thing. And some of the emotions that you talk about in the book might be a more difficult swallow in the way of this is something that is needed, message, things like you know envy, anger, things like that. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I, I think there's a, there's kind of a long philosophical tradition of thinking that emotions are ways of caring about things. So I, you know, I just give everybody a kind of a sense. Um, I sometimes use philosophy as an example of that, right? This is my, this is my life. This is the thing that I've devoted myself to. Uh, I'm going to feel because I care about it, I'm going to be liable to all sorts of emotions about it. Right. And usually when we think of caring, we almost always think of positive emotions. So I'm going to be excited if I get to go to a philosophy conference, I'm going to feel, you know, happy when I get to read a new book that I'm really excited about. Um, But then I'm also Negative emotions are just as much a part of that. So when people say terrible things about how philosophy is useless, I'm going to get mad about it. Um, <laughs> you know, when one of my friends like wins some like super fabulous philosophy prize, I'll probably be a little envious about it because it's something I want for my life. So I, I think negative emotions play exactly the same role that a positive emotions do in that sense. They are just part of what it means to care about something. Uh, and so, you know, for example, for things like anger, I think most of the time the negative emotions are, they usually have something to do with you. So they're usually sort of like centering around the self. Um, so when I'm angry, I'm angry because somebody has either insulted me or they've insulted something that I really care about or someone that I really care about. Um, when I'm envious, it's because I there's something that I want for my life and I see somebody else enjoying it. And so I'm going to feel envy because I'm going to be like, ah, but I want that for my life. Um, so I think that's true for basically all of the negative emotions. There's something, they, they are signaling that something matters to you. And so the question is, if we want to explore them and we don't want to sort of assume from the outset that there's something wrong with them, I think getting a handle on what role they all play in our lives helps us get a better sense of what it means to live with them. So if we can figure out what it is that these negative emotions are, are caring about, then we can sort of figure out, I think, how to live with them a little bit better. So that's sort of the second half of the book is really devoted to trying to understand, well, like, 
you know, if we imagined our negative emotions as messengers, if they're telling us something, what are they telling us? What is it that I care about when I'm feeling this thing? I think that's going to help us accept them a little bit better once we realize they're playing a role, right? They're doing something. They're telling you what you care about. Hmm. And the, the sentence that I, I read earlier, you know, when bad feelings happen, just feel them. Then it, it makes me in my mind, well, yeah, but, you know, it's not, <laughs> yeah. not always a good yeah, but, but it's, you sure. know, I'm thinking of, um, you know, there's been these metaphors throughout history around reason and passion, maybe one, um, most recently that comes to mind, I, th- I think it was Jonathan Haidt, the elephant and the rider. You know, the elephant being our more emotional side and the rider being more rational side. Illustrating the point that, like, sometimes these mo- emotions are really powerful. You know, they're, they're kind of out of, our, out of our control sometimes. Would you agree with that? And, you know, if not, obviously, obviously why? But, you know, how, how do we deal with that? Yeah. So, yeah. So I, I don't, I don't disagree at all that sometimes our emotions can be powerful. Right. And I think that's part of what it is to illustrate, you know, that, that we're not always in control of them. Like that we, they can, they can really shock us in ways that are, um, that sometimes feel uncomfortable. Um, I think we, when we say that, I think we almost always think of a case where your emotion is powerful and it causes you to do something bad. And so that's when we start to get worried. We're like, oh, oh, if it takes over and then you, you know, we think of anger, right? If it takes over and it like you, you know, you punch a hole through the wall, like, oh, well, that's, that's a bad thing, right? But I think it's, I think we don't think of cases where something can be really, an emotion can be really powerful and it, it actually tells you something good. So I'll give you an example of, um, I had a much more, a, a surprising reaction to the death of my grandmother than I ever imagined I would. Cause it's not like, like we weren't close and, and there was, you know, some interesting features of our relationship. Um, and yet it, I had this response that was so powerful and I had no, I just didn't, it took me completely off guard. Mm. Um, it didn't cause me to do anything bad, but what it did help me realize is that she actually did play a much bigger role in my life than I had appreciated when she was Mm. alive and having that powerful reaction and having that powerful response. Yeah. That, that grief was, and it was scary and I didn't expect it and I didn't, I didn't quite know how to handle it, but it wasn't as though the power of the emotion was inherently bad somehow. It was in fact actually telling me something really important. And I think there there are lots of cases like that where the the power of our emotion and and the fact that they surprise us and we don't and they take off, off take us off guard and they feel out of control, um, there might be good reasons for why that's happening. And I think we're I think we're just a little bit resistant because we typically think of the case of like oh the anger that takes me over and and causes me to do something like stupid or or silly or violent we're so much more likely to think of those cases than we are to think of the cases where oh my gosh my super powerful emotion actually told me something really important about myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's so interesting like this idea of um sometimes i think about 
like everything belongs. You know, it's like if we can just uh, have the the courage or the patience or the awareness to be with whatever it is. Um, you you talk about in, in one of the chapters Nietzsche's idea of amor fati. Yeah. Which uh, I'm a I'm a big fan of. Sometimes people are really critical uh, of that. I was happy to see it, but like sometimes I think of like what's the alternative to this particular, you know, approach. But yeah, could you say a little bit about, um, you know, this idea of a morfati? Yeah, yeah. It's this, uh, it's Nietzsche's little Latin phrase that some, that means love of fate. And it's, he, it, it partially, I think I'm, I might be wrong about this, but I think he borrows it actually. It's, it's not his creation, but it's something that he borrows from the Stoics. But he means it in a different way. So the the Stoics and also um, you know I think also Spinoza is like this too. Their their version of love of fate is just to sort of like accept that you have no free will, right? And sort of accept that like life you're sort of attached to life in the same way that a horse is attached to a cart, um, and that is meant to bring you a certain kind of like peace to sort of just accept that that's that that's what life is. You know whatever life gives you, like just take it. Um, Nietzsche's version of Amor Fati is a little different. He thinks you, it's a, it's a way of asking yourself, can you love and embrace everything in your life, even the parts of it that you don't really welcome or the parts of it that you don't expect or the parts that actually kind of devastate you? Are you able to have a, a, a good enough attitude towards your life such that you love it even when it doesn't go your way? Um, and can you, can you sort of accept that? And so I, the, I think that's great. I think the description is great because it's about, it's this sort of like joyous embrace of the wildness of your life and the fact that it it's going to take turns that you can't anticipate it's gonna things are going to happen to you that you might never expect and can you sort of love something that's like that that you can't predict that you don't control Uh, and I think that's the kind of attitude that I would love it if we could have toward our emotional life is to sort of like embrace it even when it is unpredictable, even when we don't control it, even when it's powerful and it gets the better of us. Can we still embrace that thing? Yeah, and it does seem like it's it's obviously a uh, aspirational type of idea, you know, yeah. but it does seem like it's possible in like this book that that you've just put out and other books it seems like can really help us to to do that why is you know fill in the blank with any sort of emotion anger sadness you know happiness whatever it may be um not unbelievably interesting and just uh you know something uh just fascinating to to be with mm-hmm. um has this book helped you in in some way to maybe take a small step you know in that direction yeah yeah it's funny because i i think i <laughs> i'm not even though i wrote this book about rethinking your negative emotions and i think i'm probably much more open to negative emotions than other people it would just be a lie to say that i like am perfect at this like at, at, at no point would that be true that i struggle with this as much as anybody else does um but i think uh 
it has helped me, particularly when I start feeling these things, it has helped me much more to say, you know what, take your own advice and say out loud to yourself, I'm really feeling this right now. And then just stop. And I and the number of times that I've sort of forced myself to do that and how much it's helped me um, immediately kind of say, this is what I'm just doing this because I care about this. You know, I, this is how I'm, I'm feeling this because, because this matters to me. Mm-hmm. And, and to, and it has taken, um, and I don't want to suggest that this is necessarily like what I'm aiming for, but it, but it does take the, um, the sting away of the feeling. It takes that, it takes that initial sort of like sharp, edge that it has and it kind of makes it a little bit more gentle it doesn't make the feeling go away and I'm not really looking for it to go away but but it does let me sort of um kind of like welcome it in in a way that doesn't that takes away sort of I think some of the harshness of the experience and makes it in some sense like less negative so yeah that's been um it's been a a big help for me especially when I'm like I'm a person who doesn't is for being a philosopher I should I should be much more comfortable with uncertainty (laughs) than I am and I'm I'm comfortable with it at like a theoretical level I'm not so comfortable with it in my actual life uh and so when I experience these times of like a lot of uncertainty it this is i i think writing the book has sort of helped me with my own struggles in that way is to think of like look your anxiety about the uncertainty is is just as much one of those negative emotions that you wrote about as envy and anger are and so like why not embrace it in the same way that you embrace these other ones yeah i i love how you just said um when you started and then just stop because it seems like it's so easy for us to like that story can just it's gone in the way of um you know evaluating and our sorts of um you know subjective judgments around whatever may happen which is in a way like avoiding or distracting ourselves from just being with that particular um, emotion so that just stop is uh a beautiful and and difficult thing but if um if we can remember you know it, it seems like it is something that is we're capable of you yeah. know even if it's a strong strong emotion mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um I'm, I'm really curious to ask um like every once in a while on uh the podcast i get on a, a forgiveness soapbox <laughs> type of, of thing. So like uh, uh, apologies um, in advance here. When it comes to say anger, some sort of negative feeling, like I am totally with the idea of, you know, like being with it, like it's time to just feel it, you know, but then at some point, and it's different for every situation and who knows how long it'll take, but, you know, it seems like at some point there has to be a, like a now what? Now, what do I want to, to do? And, and, and especially in the definition, and listeners may be thinking about anger in many different ways, but when you think about the definition from like Aristotle and Seneca that you kind of list in, in the book, you know, it has this kind of revenge, retaliation type of uh, thread to it. Um, 
And it seems like in the way of this is in search of wisdom that there is the wisdom of forgiveness. There is this wisdom of at some point in time letting go of that particular feeling because you could essentially carry around this bag in my like visual of all sorts of anger and resentment and it's like part of your um, household goods that you move (laughs) around from like zip code to zip code Um, you know where does this idea of forgiveness or letting go like how do you think about that Krista yeah that's a great question so um, one so there's a couple things to say so one thing to say is there are definitely times and I know people who are like this like there are definitely times where sometimes you're the anger that you have, it goes back a long time and it has something to do with something that happened to you that you've never been able to kind of move on from. And there's, I think two questions to ask about that. So one question to ask about that is, is it, um, is it because you never sort of had the chance to feel heard Um, that you never feel that you never felt like the thing that you were hurt about or the thing that you were insulted over that you never got a chance to sort of have someone else recognize that that happened to you. Right. And so if that's right, then in some ways what your anger is, is that continued desire for, that thing to have been recognized that you were hurt, insulted, wronged in some way. Right. And so even though I think, and I, and I get that this is provocative. I totally understand this. Um, Even though I think there's a real sense that people have that, you know, eventually you've got to let that go. Even if it never comes, even if the recognition never comes, like you've eventually got to let that go. What I want to say is, or you don't have to let that go. Because if your anger is your own sort of continued statement that I didn't deserve to be treated that way, that person really did wrong me, um, that really happened to me, it's my, it's my scar tissue. And, and as long as it's not actually preventing me from flourishing, if, it's, if, it's, if I'm able to live my life, if I'm a successful person and I have other things in my life that I love and that I'm able to sort of like, I would just, I would totally describe myself this way as someone who like has absolutely long-term anger over a kind of unacknowledged wrong. Um, if it's, if it's just my scar tissue and I, and I want, and I want to have it there so that I can sort of say, I got to recognize that that wound happened. Like that wound really happened and, and it didn't heal right. And, and, and that's how it, but that's how it is. But I can live with scar tissue as long as the scar tissue is not taking over my whole body. Right. If Mm -hmm. I can, but I can live with scars and that's okay. And I can have a good life even though I have those scars. So the question I feel like people have to ask is, um, is your anger functioning like scar tissue where you can go on with your life or is your anger functioning like, um, you know, a cinder block and it's, and you're in the water and you're drowning. 
Like then the question might be different. Then the question of like what to do with your anger might be a different sort of thing. If it really is preventing you from living your life. I think most of the time, I think there are some cases that are like that where it's more like the cinder block, but I think there's actually quite a few cases where it's actually more like the scar tissue. And we just kind of like have this idea that you can't live with it, that you can't live well with anger. And if you're angry all the time, things are going wrong. But anger, like like the color wheel, anger has a lot of different flavors. And there can be some anger that's not, it's not a fiery thing that's going to burn your house down immediately. It's more like an ember. It's smoldering a little bit. But, mm. you know, it's not going to catch anything on fire, actually. It's just kind of warm. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> <laughs> well, beautiful. Thank you so much for yeah. for sharing that. Yeah, I, I love that uh, that answer. Um our our time has flown by here. Maybe now yeah. is a good time to to get to this wrap up question that we have. How do you define or think about wisdom in daily life, Krista? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think wisdom is something that is hard won. So uh, wisdom comes from um, taking a lot of falls <laughs> and and getting back up and sort of looking back and going it's a, yeah it's it's something that you develop from uh i think having screwed up <laughs> a lot and then being able to sort of look back and go okay <laughs> i see what happened there um so i think daily was i think wisdom is is something that you learn and it's something you develop over time and it's something that comes from living a lot of life and and sort of like realizing what it means realizing what it means for things to go wrong and realizing what it means for things to go well and realizing that life is not a perfect linear progression towards mm-hmm. some you know we're, like we're always on the up and up and it's a, and it's a perfect straight line. I think it's it's a thing that weaves and it's a thing that doubles back on itself and and the and the quicker we sort of make peace with, you know, with life being sort of a tangled mess, I think the quicker <laughs> I think the quicker wisdom's going to come. <laughs> Does that connect in uh, in any way with the scar tissue? Maybe not, you know, major you know, injuries, but little, little bumps and, yeah. and scrapes along the way. Yeah. Can that be scar Absolutely. tissue? <laughs> Absolutely. I think a life well lived is going to end up with some scar tissue. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Well, this has been great. Um, congrats on the, on the book. Well Thank done. You. I, I really enjoyed it. And again, for the listeners, it's, it's dancing with the devil. Why bad feelings make life good. It's a, it's a really counterintuitive guide to the good life and in my view so it's good are there any other uh books websites you know places that you might uh point our listeners uh yeah in terms of in terms of like sort of more about my stuff i so i'm on instagram if you want to find me that's um prof kk thomason on instagram i i've been doing some videos that um kind of take people a little bit behind the book uh and i talk a, a little bit about what the writing process was like and uh tell you a little bit give you a sneak peek into what's in some of the chapters so if anybody's wondering um whether or not they should pick the book up you could always check those videos out give you a little bit of a window into what's in the book yeah. Nice. Well, we'll link it in the show notes so it's easy to find. Uh, Krista Thomason, thank you so much for coming on In Search of Wisdom. 
Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening. I hope you found something useful. If so, I encourage you to put what you heard into practice. If you're interested in more podcasts, meditations, and courses on the art of living, consider checking out our daily newsletter, Perennial Meditations on Substack. Until next time, be wise and be well.